Welcome to the AT Parenting Survival Podcast, where you get help and guidance through the chaos of parenting a child with anxiety or OCD. This show is for educational purposes and is not intended to replace the guidance of a qualified professional. Here's your host, child therapist, Natasha Daniels. Well, hello there, and welcome to another episode of the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. Today, I want to talk to you about It's a little bit of a technical topic, but honestly, stick with me. It's going to be helpful in you understanding how to help your child with OCD and and some of the changes that have been happening over actually quite a long period of time. So I'm going to be talking about the inhibitory learning model, which I know can sound a little boring, but stick with me because it does impact some of the old understandings of how we approach OCD and some of how OCD treatment in general is changing. And yes, as a parent, you do need to know that because you might say, well, Natasha, this sounds like a clinical podcast episode, or this sounds like it's an episode for clinicians. And yes, clinicians might find this really interesting if they want a deeper dive on this, but it's important for you as the parent to know, not that you have to know the nitty gritty about research, but it's helpful for you to know how to tweak your approaches to OCD at home because you are supposed to be helping your child. And even if you don't want to do that, or you don't know how to do that, it's not really a choice. You're at the front, you're in the front lines, you are in the minefield of OCD and OCD will involve you. And so you have to know how to do these things at home or how to coach your child to do those things at home. And even maybe knowing these things to make sure that your child's getting the right therapy or the therapeutic approach is actually clinically sound. So no pressure, (laughs) but I'm going to break this down in a super simple way and talk to you just about some new, it's not new, actually, some learning models that have come out over, it has been actually quite a long period of time, but the AT Parenting community, as I've been mentioning, gets to vote on different topics. They're not actually voting on this. I just ask people what you'd want me to talk about in my podcast episodes, my YouTube channel. And quite a lot of them wanted me to explain the inhibitory learning model and how that impacts OCD treatment. So here we are. But before I get started, I do want to say thank you to NoCD. This episode is sponsored by NoCD and NoCD offers affordable, effective, convenient therapy. They are available in the U.S. and outside of the U.S. And you can schedule your free 15-minute consultation to see if NoCD is a right fit for you and your child. Just go to treatmyocd.com. That is treatmyocd.com. And the nice thing about NoCD is they stay up on the research and they keep making sure to train their clinicians to give your child the latest and greatest effective OCD treatment, which is really important. And that's all, all the things we're going to be talking about today. So let's break this down in a somewhat entertaining, engaging way. (laughs) Take a dry topic and make it fun. And this is an advanced topic. So I did leave links in the show notes on what is ERP, exposure with response prevention. And I do recommend that maybe you understand ERP before you listen to this episode, because ERP is the gold standard therapeutic approach to treating OCD. And nobody's refuted that. We've done a lot of research and the efficacy of ERP. And ERP is a, it's like a a subtype of cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, is the most effective form of treatment for OCD. But there is a question as far as why that is. And I'm not going to go into ERP today. I do have an entire podcast on that. 
It's actually an old episode, episode 53. So if you want to pause this and go listen to that one and then come back, if you're like, I am so behind the eight ball, I don't understand what ERP is, go ahead and do that and then come back because we're not going to, we're not going to talk about that. But researchers were trying to understand why ERP is effective. And there had been an understanding that it is due partly to habituation, which is, you know, just a fancy word for you get used to it. You know, and so if I expose myself to touching dirty things, eventually I get used to it. And there had been a thought as well that I am actually like kind of overriding. If we use like a computer term, I'm overriding the, I'm trying to, maybe I shouldn't talk computers because I don't know computers well enough. I'm overriding the program with a new learning, right? And so if I like to think about this more like if you think about neural pathways, as like roads or highways. And so in the habituation model, they were saying that it's like, you are basically like repaving that road. So let's say I have a really bumpy road that has all these like false beliefs or, or over-exaggerated fears. So my bumpy road is, oh my gosh, if I have a bad thought, then I'm a bad person. And if I don't do A plus B equals C to make sure that these bad things don't happen, then I'm going to turn into a bad person or I already am a bad person. Bumpy, bumpy, bumpy road, right? And then I do exposures and I'm using moral OCD as just an example, but you know, OCD has like, you know, a zillion flavors, but I'm just using this for simplicity's sake so that I can really make it concrete. And so in the habituation model, I might say, okay, I'm going to get out my pavers and I'm going to smooth out that road and I'm going to ride that road, even though it's bumpy but I'm going to have new learning and I'm going to make that road easier to go on. And because I'm going on it all all the time over and over, I'm realizing that I can do it and I'm getting used to it. I'm habituating and therefore I get better. But there had been some problems with that theory because some people don't habituate. Like it's always bumpy. It never gets smooth or it got smooth, but then like down the road, it gets bumpy again, or it got smooth, but they didn't get better. And so there were all these questions about why that is, and then enter the inhibitory learning model, which kind of came up with a different theory about why ERP is helpful and also how to tweak it for those situations where it maybe isn't helpful and hasn't helped somebody. And so it's not based on making that road smoother, but in the inhibitory learning model, they're saying, we're not even talking about that road. So you've got that bumpy road and that's the way to school. Let's just use this metaphor, right? That's the way we always go. That's our path. But in the inhibitory learning model, we're carving out a completely new path. We're saying, you know what? That path is not working out. It's bumpy. It's uncomfortable. It creates a lot of fear. I don't like that path. I don't want to keep going down that path. So I'm going to pave a new path. Look at this beautiful path over here, right? So maybe a new neural pathway that is you know, arching out and creating a new pathway in my brain to bring a little science into it. And so in the inhibitory learning model, we need to make that new path more enticing, right? Because it's easier to go on a path that's already created. Maybe this new path that I'm starting to carve out, this new way of learning, it's not strong enough, or it's like a dirt path. And so I need to make that path more enticing so that I go on that more often. (laughs) Does this make sense? I hope that you're following. So the difference is we're not rewriting or overriding that fear. We're actually creating new learning. And so the new learning 
that new safety learning of I can do this and I can be okay, I can survive it, is the inhibitory learning model. Now, having said all that, what does that even mean? How is that going to help you? I'm going to break this down in simple English. So let's talk about that. So the, the first thing that that impacts is the concept that you have to habituate or get used to whatever you're being exposed to. So in classic ERP, a person would do an exposure where let's say, let's look at moral OCD. I'm just going to keep using that as an example, just for simplicity's sake, but it doesn't mean that your child with contamination or your child with symmetry or your child with whatever, that this example doesn't relate to them because it's a foundational thing. Any, any OCD theme will work with what I'm talking about. And so in the past, let's say we did an exposure with someone with moral OCD and maybe they had to do an exposure where they have to lie. Now, um, we're not going to go into ERP, but it's not like you are like condoning these behaviors. But if I have moral OCD where I'm so consumed with worrying that I'm a bad person and that I may be lying, a lot of people with moral OCD, they can't even, you know, offer simple opinions because they think, wait, am I lying? Am I sure? Right? So do you, what do you want for dinner? I want pizza. Wait a minute. No, I want spaghetti because I don't want to be a liar. Hey, how are you doing today? Good. Wait, maybe I'm not okay. I'm okay. No, I think I'm not okay. So you have to take it out of the realm of normal and like really understand the impact that these issues have. I'm just explaining it because some of you might not know what moral OCD is. You may not understand. So my exposures might sound weird. You might be like, why would you do an exposure on lying? So I just felt like I had to preface that without changing my example. <laughs> so an exposure might be, we're going to go around and we're each in my therapy practice, we'd always do like a two truths and a lie and make it fun. Like we play a game. But for someone with moral OCD, saying a lie, even, you know, if I'm wearing a green shirt and I have to go around and I have to say, and I'm wearing a red shirt, the the earth would like crumble according to their OCD. I can't lie. I'm going to like, poof, turn into a bad person. And so in the old model, maybe I have to keep lying and lying and lying until on my SUD scale, which is like a stress scale, let's say it's one to 10, 10 being like, I am in complete panic. And one is like, this doesn't bother me at all then I need to keep lying and doing this exposure until I can get down to a certain point that is maybe clinically okay. Oh, okay, you've gone down a certain amount. You're habituating. You are getting used to it, kind of like jumping into cold water. And so that's how we do ERP. Now, some people don't habituate, and so they stay at a 10. And and so there's been a shift now to say, you don't have to go down in your number. A lot of people do, and that's great, but you don't have to because now we're focusing on anxiety tolerance. Can you handle the discomfort? And that's changed a lot of my language with my own kids where we're saying, you know, I know that you can handle the discomfort or I know it doesn't feel good, but you can handle the discomfort, right? We're not going to do what OCD wants and we're going to sit with the discomfort. And then we're not going to say, is the discomfort getting better or it's going away? And that, that that's an important component for parents to realize because a lot of times parents are gauging success and kids are gauging success on two things. One, that they're no longer having discomfort and two, that they're not having the intrusive thought or feeling. And so even in the habituation model, we wouldn't say that the intrusive thought or feeling is going to go away. So that's just a parent error or a child error that I want to just throw out there because I see that a lot. Like, oh my gosh, she's still having these intrusive thoughts. 
Okay. But is she able to handle the discomfort that comes with it? Yeah, she actually is. She's not doing her compulsions. Okay. Then that actually is success. The difference though in the habituation and the inhibitory learning model is that we're not basing success on whether I am having discomfort or not. And so in the habituation model, we might say, once you are able to tolerate it and not only tolerate it, but you are habituating to it, you are getting so used to it that you're comfortable in it, then we've succeeded. And now there's been a shift for quite a while, actually, but I think, you know, it always takes a while for things to get momentum. Now there's a shift to say, are you able to tolerate the discomfort? It may not be fun. You may not like it, but are you able to tolerate the discomfort? And the more you do this, the more you realize that the sky doesn't fall and that you're able to handle the discomfort. So that's, that's where we focus as a parent. My son doesn't like heights. And, you know, we went to the Grand Canyon last summer and it's not your typical phobia of, oh, I just don't like heights. Like his OCD would make him walk like a mile away from the corner. Like nobody likes, well, I don't want to say nobody. I don't like heights either, but I don't have an OCD thing about heights. And so he would have to walk like, it wasn't just like the edge. It was like he had to walk across the street, just like he's afraid of being, he was afraid of getting poked by cacti. And so instead of just like making sure he doesn't get poked, he would have to walk across the street when he saw them, like the cactus was a bad guy. Like, you know, I have to cross the street when I see a cactus because they're going to attack me. And so it can be irrational. It doesn't mean that every time he walks by a cactus, he doesn't feel that discomfort, right? So he might walk by a million cacti and he still every single time gets that butterfly feeling in his stomach and he feels kind of woozy and he feels really, really nervous, but he handles the discomfort. So in the habituation model, they would say it's not successful until he can walk by a cactus and he doesn't feel that like overwhelming feeling. They would say the more you do it, the better it'll get. And that is true for a lot, a lot of people. So we don't want to discount that. It's just not the goal anymore. And so I would say for a majority of people, that does happen. They do often habituate to it. I know that's true for me. I've been driving a lot and doing a lot of different things, you know, since my husband died that normally made me uncomfortable. And now it doesn't bother me at all. Went to the airport the other day and it was so crowded and like the streets in and out of the airport can get so congested. I don't know, it's spring break. So it was like crazy. And like my blood pressure didn't even rise. Like I was so relaxed, which is not how I would have been because he normally drove everywhere. So I have habituated to it, but that isn't the goal. The goal is to tolerate the discomfort that it brings to you. So even if my son was able to go past a cactus every time and always had that woozy feeling, but he was able to do it and he understood that he could handle the uncomfortable feeling, then that would be the goal. Okay. The next part, I'm going to go through a couple of different parts of this. The next part of the inhibitory learning model is disconfirming expectations. So there's a little bit more, in my opinion, cognitive behavioral components to the inhibitory learning model versus kind of the pure habituation model, which was very just pure behavioral. This is my opinion. I'm not a researcher. So I'm just giving it to you from my perspective. It seemed very pure behavioral. And it was like, do your exposure and then do it again. Get your SUDS rating one to 10. What's your stress level? Get it down, do it again. But with the inhibitory learning model and also bringing in ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy, that goes really well with the inhibitory learning model. There's more dialogue. 
Now, not dialogue that is like reassurance and not dialogue that is rationalizing with the OCD. So you have to be very careful about this part, but disconfirming expectations. And so let me give you an example. We're going to use the cacti example because it's actually an easy one to use. So my son's OCD, so it wasn't anxiety because it went way above and beyond that. A lot of compulsive behavior around not getting poked. And so he had a disproportionate belief that the likelihood of him getting poked by this cactus was so high that it was almost probable when he walked five feet away from a cactus, which is irrational. And that's, you know, where we're in the kind of a little about the OCD world in this, but I don't want to get into like what's anxiety and what's OCD. So just stick with me on, on this example. And so when he is doing an exposure and he's walking by the cactus, walking by the cactus, walking by the cactus, we're also disconfirming his expectations. Did you get poked by the cactus? No. Not that you can't get poked by the cactus, but did you? Because the likelihood is smaller than what your brain is telling you. Now, we're not going to do reassurance. You won't, get, you won't get poked by the cactus. Don't worry. You're fine. You're safe. We're not doing that, but we're disconfirming expectations. If I have harm OCD and I worry that and a lot of harm OCD or moral OCD you know, can be graphic and taboo, and that is normal. And so I like to use those examples to normalize that. So if I have harm OCD and I think the likelihood of me taking this knife and stabbing my dog is very high. And so I need to be away from all the knives. I need to be away from my dog. And so maybe an exposure would be for me to sit with my dog and just know that I can pet my dog without choking him or stabbing him. And so I'm disconfirming my expectation that says, my OCD says, you're going to harm your dog. Well, I'm doing an exposure and I'm sitting with my discomfort. And, and so I'm, maybe I'm not habituating, but I'm able to handle the discomfort that I'm experiencing by sitting next to my dog, my dog and having these intrusive thoughts that OCD gets loud when I'm near my dog and says, you might harm your dog and you love your dog. You should probably stay away from your dog. I'm going to stay with my dog, right? That's a new road. I'm building a new safety learning road that says I can be with my dog. So maybe the first road says you are not safe around your dog. I have harm OCD. You are not safe with your dog. You might harm your dog. And now I'm paving a new road. So the old road and the old belief still exists, but I'm working on a new belief system that says, actually, I can be near my dog. And the likelihood of me hurting my dog is not high. We never want to talk about definitives like I won't hurt my dog or I won't get poked by a cacti because we don't want that reassurance because embracing uncertainty is still part of this model. But we talk a little bit more about disconfirming expectations. Interesting how you didn't hurt your dog, even though you sat next to it, or you went to the kitchen and you didn't grab a knife, right? That's harm OCD. So that's disconfirming expectations. Kind of go through these rather quickly just to give you a synopsis. Um, And the next one is they incorporate an element of surprise. And so sometimes OCD will over-exaggerate the expectation or the, the outcome it thinks will happen. If I sit here and I'm using an extreme example and I'm doing it on purpose because I want to normalize harm OCD. So stick with me if your child doesn't have this issue or you think, oh my gosh, this is horrible. OCD will, will bring up really taboo, really difficult OCD themes and we don't want to shy away from them. And so if I'm sitting there and you know I put maybe a butter knife on my lap and then I put my dog on my lap, my OCD is going to say, 
You absolutely cannot do that because without a doubt, you know, the, the risk of you stabbing your dog now is so high. It's probable. And so the element of surprise to really prove, wow, OCD was way off, right? Can be very, very effective. This would be an effective approach with magical thinking, right? Like I can't use an even number. I have to use odd or I can't use an odd number. I have to use even because if I do, my mom's going to die. Well, let's see if we can prove that wrong, (laughs) you know? And so let's write two, 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 two. And maybe we might even do an exposure that says two, 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 my mom's going to die. Two, 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 my mom's going to die. Right. You take baby steps, but I'm just giving you the extreme. And then, oh my gosh, let's call your mom from the waiting room if we're in therapy because she's, you know, she, maybe she's dead. Nope. She's just sitting there. Right. That's weird because my OCD has always told me that if I do that, the whole world will crumble and my mom's going to die. So the element of surprise really helps pave that new road of thinking and can help because we want to really entice the brain to go to that new road of thinking instead of that old bumpy road. Is this making sense so far? I hope that this is making sense. Okay, the next one, there's two more I just want to mention, is combining fear cues. Now, I always layered exposures anyway, so I think a lot of therapists are doing all these things. This information has been around for quite a while. They've been talking about the inhibitory learning model for a very long time in my book. And so I think a lot of therapists have naturally incorporated a lot of these things into their teachings, but I do feel like well, I'll get into it in a minute, but there's a couple of things that I think are just very old school that this new approach is not embracing. And we'll kind of go over those in a second. But combining fear cues is just layering exposures. So if I was to have that person go pet their dog, you know, go grabbing a knife and layering it, right? So now you're sitting with your dog and there's a knife here. And then I might even layer it even higher. And we might have you say something like, I'm going to kill you, little fluffy. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh, but I'm making very extreme weird examples. So that would be very triggering possibly for the child who's worried about killing Fluffy. And so when you layer or combine fear cues, now it's going to be even more effective because it's very powerful. Um, you, don't do, you don't start off doing that necessarily, but you build on that. Um, the other thing is not doing a hierarchy. And so a lot of times in the inhibitory learning model, and also with ACT, Acceptance Commitment Therapy, which kind of combines a lot of these thoughts, they'll have a menu. And so there has been some talk about how you mix it up. You know, sometimes we're going to do something that's really, really intense. And sometimes we're going to do something that's easy. And we're going to not make it predictable and have the child pick, you know, from menu. Which one do you want to do? You can start off with something that is going to feel like a 9 or a 10 on your 1 to 10 scale. And then maybe we do a 3. And that keeps the brain guessing and it keeps the responses fresh and authentic. And so that's something to do. We used to think it had to go in that hierarchy very systematically up that ladder. Um, That's how I taught it, even in my OCD class, going up that ladder very systematically. And the inhibitory learning model saying, eh, you don't have to do it that way. It's not that it's bad to do it that way, but you don't have to. And you don't have to get that child going from a 10 down to a, a lower number. It's nice when it happens, but it doesn't have to happen. And, and so that those are some of the things that are kind of big changes, I think, in the way that we think of things. And the last one is variety. And so we want the brain to generalize. And so I don't want it to be like, I can touch the doorknob in my therapist's office, but I can't touch the doorknobs in my house. Or I can eat as long as I eat this particular thing, but I can't eat other things. And so OCD can kind of give you like a freebie and say, okay, fine, 
You know, every time you go to your therapist, you know, you have to touch the toilet. From now on, we'll make a rule that that toilet is not contaminated, but all other toilets are contaminated. (laughs) OCD is smart. It will do that. The therapist will outsmart you. And so you have to always stay one step ahead and say, now we're going to touch a whole bunch of toilets. And so that's why it's very helpful when a therapist gives you homework and has you do it in different situations. Can I do it in this situation? Can I do it in that situation? Can I do it in this environment? Can I say it in a different way? You want to shake it up and do exposures in lots of different ways, in different places, with different people to help with the generalization. Okay, so that's pretty much the differences in a nutshell. And I do feel like the biggest difference is getting stuck on how your child's not habituating, like they're not getting used to it, and the hierarchy. And I think those are like the two number one things that are like a big difference because I know in the past we kind of get concerned if the child's not habituating, or we would say that they would eventually habituate, or we would say if they have habituated, then everything's going to get better. And so there's a couple of things I still like to do with kids in when I'm working with them. I do still like to check in and see what their one to 10 scale is periodically. I'm not checking in to see if they're going down per se, but I do like to get their perspective on where they're at. Now, some kids might say, I'm a 10, I'm a 10, I'm a 10. They may never go down. And sometimes they say that because they don't want to do it anymore. Sometimes they say it because they've never habituated and they're just not getting used to it. But there's a shift to say that you are handling your discomfort, you know, that, that you got through it. And so even though it wasn't fun, you were still able to get through it and teaching the brain that they can get through these things and survive. It may not be something that you love doing, may not be something that you're ever going to be comfortable doing, but that you can do it and that you got through it and you can handle the discomfort. And that that's the basic thing. So the message is that obsessional fears are less probable or less severe than you thought. And so if I'm afraid of throwing up, it might be that I may or may not get sick, right? Because we're not doing reassurance. And if I do get sick, I will be able to handle the discomfort. And so I often don't get sick, but if I do, I'll be able to handle the discomfort. Anxiety and obsessional thoughts are tolerable. And so I can handle the level of anxiety that I'm going to feel or the difficult thoughts I'm going to have or the difficult feelings I'm going to have, and that I will be able to handle it without doing a compulsion. And so if things need to be just right, right? Then I might say to myself, if they're not just right, I won't be able to handle the discomfort it's going to bring. And in the inhibitory learning model, I'm saying to myself, I'm not going to do the thing that OCD wants me to do to bring that relief. And I'm going to be able to handle and tolerate the discomfort that I'm going to experience. And so it's not that the discomfort is going to go away over time. I'm going to do it over and over and over and over again until it goes away but I know that I can tolerate the discomfort that it brings, even though it's not fun, right? A lot of times the discomfort does go away, but that's not the goal. So I think that makes sense. The message is that compulsions aren't necessary for safety or to tolerate anxiety. So I don't need to do all these things to keep myself safe. And I don't need to do all these things to tolerate my anxiety because I can handle the discomfort, which is a beautiful, like, you know, resiliency model anyway that says we can all do hard things. We can all do things that are uncomfortable and they may not be fun to do, but we can get through them. And we don't have to take all these measures to keep ourselves safe or to avoid feeling anxiety that we can feel anxiety or we can feel disgust or we can feel unevenness or we can feel dirty 
or we can have an intrusive thought that makes us feel bad and we can still get through it without having to do a compulsion or without having to reduce our anxiety in a way that is compulsive. So I hope that makes sense to you. It really doesn't make too strong of a shift in the things that you are probably doing at home or the things that you are doing with a therapist. It's just language. And so in my house, we often say stuff like, you can handle the discomfort, or do you need to do that compulsion, or can you sit with the discomfort? Or we also like to say, we don't like to give anxiety or OCD the last bite. It's kind of a a mantra at our house. And so even if my son is not able to eat something because he has OCD issues around food, we might say, why don't you show OCD that, that you always get the last bite? And so he'll, he'll eat and he'll tolerate the discomfort that eating that last bite will cause to show his brain, you know, he's driving on that other path all of a sudden. The more our kids drive on the other path, not the bumpy path, the more paved that path is going to be, the more desirable it's going to be, and the more believable it's going to be. And it's going to be the one that they're going to go on easier than the one that OCD wants them to go on. And so instead of saying, if you eat it, you're going to start to feel more comfortable. You just have to keep eating it over and over. Honestly, with my son, he is not habituated to eating. And I don't know if that is because it's pans related or if it's more neurological related to pans. He's got ARFID, Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder. You can listen to a podcast episode I have on ARFID if you're interested in that. You can always go to my website at atparentingsurvival.com. Go all the way to the bottom. There's a search button. If I ever bring up anything and you're like, what is she talking about now? Just type it in like ARFID, A-R-F-I-D, and then you'll see the podcast will come up from there. It's probably the easiest way to find the podcast that I'm talking about. But he hasn't habituated. And honestly, it's very frustrating because my daughter, who had who has the metaphobia, the fear of throwing up, and sensory motor OCD related to like having to pee over and over again. <laughs> I have podcast episodes on all of these different topics. She does habituate. And so she will feel nauseous and then she'll do an exposure. She'll like watch throw up videos and she will eventually like, it won't affect her. It won't impact her. And she did sensory motor exposures where she like would ho- not go to the bathroom for like 10 minutes, not go to the bathroom for 15 minutes. Then we went to an hour and then two hours and three hours. And now she doesn't have that issue. She'll say, I feel like I have to pee, but I just went, I just peed. She'll literally say, I'm going to sit with my discomfort. And she's gotten used to it because eventually when she sits with her discomfort, the feeling goes away and she does habituate to it. She's kind of a classic habituated kid. (laughs) Is there such a thing as a classic habituated kid? Whatever. But my son, he does not habituate. And as an OCD therapist, initially that was really frustrating for me because he would do these eating exposures over and over and over again. It didn't matter. He still felt disgusted. He has like disgust OCD at times. He would still feel disgusted by his food or repulsed or it would be too chewy or it never went away. And, and so it's become a practice that he walks towards his discomfort and he eats it anyway. Um, he tries not to do his compulsions of, you know, spitting out the food or avoiding the food, eat it even if his OCD is screaming at him like, ew, this is too chewy or, oh, this is, um, this is disgusting or whatever intrusive thought he's getting in that moment. It's uncomfortable for him, but he'll still do it. And he, he's learned that when he does the behaviors anyway, he's able to survive and he's able to tolerate it. And because he values gaining weight, I'm getting a little acty on you. This is like act talk, but he values 
he values growing. He's a boy. He wants to get bigger. He's really tiny because his OCD has really malnourished him. And so he loves to eat calories because he knows that that's going to make him grow. And so because he values growth, he will fight through it. And that's where the act comes in. This isn't an episode about act. I do have an episode with Dr. Zarita Ona on act and how act can help your kids. You can check out that episode. I do have it linked in the show notes, but I think I do. Yes, I do. I I linked it in in the show notes. But him focusing on what's important to him helps him override his discomfort. And so you can see where these kind of all play together. He de- he has habituated to other things. And so he had that reading issue. For those of you that have listened to me, this is another good example of where the habituation model doesn't completely work. And so he has a re- he has a reading issue where he has to reread things, which we turned we I did a whole episode on this too, on learning difficulties and how sometimes they're actually OCD in disguise. And so I'm not going to go into that, but it turned out that he he had to keep on rereading things until he like fully felt like he knew every line that he was reading. And so we did exposures around that where he would take a ruler at first and block the, the line that he just read so he couldn't reread it. And he had to sit with the discomfort of not being able to go back. And I had him do it himself because we don't want to micromanage that stuff. I want to teach him how to do exposures. And he improved. And then he got rid of the ruler. And he started to read it without, and he would just make a mental rule. I'm not allowed to go back and reread. So he would just really try to not give in to the compulsion or that urge to go and reread. And so he was doing about like, he would say like, I am almost hundred percent successful not going back and rereading anything. And eventually he was reading without any problem. So I saw him habituate really quickly on that issue, which isn't the goal, but he did like he was reading for fun all of a sudden. And like, it was like, oh my gosh, this is magical. Like it just went away, you know, like that's classic exposures. But then he stopped reading for a week. And what I noticed is he went back to reading and boom, he was crying again and all the problems were there again. And I'm like, what happened? We had, you had made so much progress, but the habituation didn't stick. And so that's kind of where that model goes wrong is We'd see that as a failure, but in the inhibitory learning model, it's not. It's like you can go back and do your exposures. You have to learn with, you know, to sit with the discomfort that reading brings you. And so it's not a one and done. It's just this practice. We need to go on that new road more often, go on that new road. And the the discomfort might be there at times, but what you're learning is that you can handle the discomfort. Okay. I feel like I'm like beating a dead horse. (laughs) I think you get it, hopefully. So I hope that you found this helpful. I think it is good for us to kind of understand this, you know, some of the research that's coming out over time. The nice thing is that there's a lot of great research being funded by the International OCD Foundation and that we're learning more all the time about why things help and how they help and how we can tweak them to be more effective. And I think that's fantastic for all of us who have kids and have OCD and anxiety so genetically embedded into our gene pool. It's just nice to see that it's not stagnant, that you know, there's so much research out there that continues to happen over and over different topics that make us eventually just more effective at approaching our kids' OCD and making therapists more effective. And that's all good stuff. So I did leave a link. I left two links at the end of in the show notes and on my website, 
One is an article on the International OCD Foundation's website. Dr. Jonathan Abramowitz is really like, he's kind of like the the mouthpiece of research on this. Um, He's a professor at the University of Northern Carolina. And he has a really fantastic article. It's super short on the inhibitory learning model. And it kind of goes over what I just discussed. So if you want a written version of that, you can go and check that out. I left a link. And then he actually did, so the International OCD Foundation is doing like research roundtables. I think it's once a month. I think it's once a month. I don't know, but I'm loving them because I love, I love to hear about research, but I like to hear about it. I like to hear it and not read it. (laughs) I have like an auditory thing. I like to hear my information and not read it. Isn't that weird? I guess it's not weird at all. But so I'm really liking these roundtable discussions and they do different topics and you can find it on YouTube if you go to the International OCD Foundation's YouTube channel. And so they did a roundtable discussion with him on the inhibitory learning model, which I thought was really perfect. So I left a link there for you to watch that. And they just go into detail about a lot of the stuff that I just talked about. And they, they actually do talk about ACT as well and how to incorporate that along with the inhibitory learning model. So I think that might, for those of you that are like, oh, I want more on this topic, there are two more resources to go check out. So I hope that you have been enjoying the show. And if you are enjoying the show, don't forget to hit a star on iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher, wherever you consume your podcast to rate the show. And if you have a few extra seconds, if you can leave a review, you know, I greatly appreciate that. Parents love to hear from other parents that things are valuable and helpful for their kids. And so I hope that you find a sparkle in everything you do. And I'll talk to you again next Tuesday. Take care. Thank you for listening to the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. To get additional support raising a child with anxiety or OCD, visit Natasha's online school of on-demand classes at atparentingsurvivalschool.com. 